0: Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd show us why it's great news that you're jealous. This this idea that you're jealous, it, it smacks of um, egocentricity and um, and it, it makes us somewhat worried. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you come and show us why your jealousy is great news for us. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, today we're looking at um, what the... Calf, what the prayer and what the sword teach us about the jealousy of God. We see uh, the calf at the start of chapter 32. We see the prayer in the middle of chapter 32 on to chapter 33, 34. And we see the sword, which is probably the most confronting image we have of the jealousy of God. We see that at the end of chapter 32. So what does the calf, the prayer... And the sword teaches us about the jealousy of God. So let's firstly look at uh, the calf. Um, Firstly, the calf. Have a look at verse 9. This comes after the people have made this golden calf and started worshipping it. And this is what God says. I've seen these people, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. And Very quickly we're confronted here with the jealousy of God, aren't we? The white, hot, burning anger of God such that his jealousy is aroused and it threatens to even destroy the very people he loves. Now we have a hard time with this, I think, because it sounds like God is having What Richard Dawkins uh, says uh, in his book, The God Delusion, he says that in this passage, we see God having a jealous sulk. And he has big problems with it. This is what he says. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. (laughs) Don't you love that sentence? It's fiction, and he's unpleasant. Not just unpleasant, he's the most unpleasant in all of fiction. Uh, He says, jealous and proud of it. A petty unjust, unforgiving, control freak. Those of us schooled from infancy in his ways can become desensitized, he says, to the horror. So you grow up uh, at Sunday school. If you grow up going to a church, your parents reading the Bible to you every night, he says you've been desensitized to how much God is a jerk, pretty much. That's what he says. And he's a jerk because he has this jealous sulk And so what are we to do about God in this passage? Does God's jealousy show us that at his heart, he's insecure, egocentric, resentful? He's like that madly obsessive lunatic who asks a girl out only to be denied, and he becomes furious and dangerous and starts stalking her and making her life unpleasant. Is that what God's like here, Right at the end, in chapter 34, we read that God, He actually calls Himself. He doesn't just say, my character is, I have the character of jealousy. Have a look at it. The 34, uh, 34, verse uh, 14. Do not worship any other gods, for the Lord, whose name is jealous. He says, so much does jealousy define who I am, that that's even one of my names. And so what do we do with this? Um, what do we do? Well, no, we don't discard this because all of us know that there are two kinds of jealousy in our world. One is a noble kind of jealousy and the other is an evil form of jealousy. And so you have vicious jealousy and that's what happens when your love dies and in its place hate emerges and this kind of jealousy is basically selfish it's basically about you starts being upset because i've lost love not because i've lost the beloved but i've lost something i've lost love and it ends in nothing but destructive anger it's all about your ego your hurt pride therefore uh, what happens is love is replaced by anger love goes away and hate and anger emerges to the point where you may even attack the person you were claiming you love. That's what vicious jealousy is. But there's another kind of jealousy that flows from love. That isn't the opposite of love, that actually flows from love. And so Tim Keller, he says that there's, there's a godly jealousy, and I've put a quote of his on, on your front cover. He simply says that godly jealousy is angered love, That stays in love. It's angered love that stays in love. It's not so much about you and your hurt pride. It's about loss of relationship. Or to put it another way, godly jealousy is love fighting extinction. Couldn't get that word out for a second, right? Godly jealousy is about love fighting extinction. It doesn't want to be extinguished. Um, Normal jealousy is love gone extinct because your self-centeredness and because of your hurt pride. Now you just hate the person who you loved before. But godly jealousy is angered love that stays in love and stays committed to rescuing that crumbling relationship and getting that person back. It's love fighting against being extinguished. I think that's a good definition and that's the reason why we must speak of God's love. And that's why, actually, God's jealousy is great news. It's his commitment not to let his love be extinguished. It's his commitment to you to pursue you and not let any other rivals come in and take you away from him. So what is it that arouses the jealousy, the jealous love of God? Well, here we read, it's an idol. Moses has been up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, and he was their only connection to God the presence of God, and they become insecure and impatient. And they come before Aaron and they say, Aaron, we're not sure where God is. We want you to make an idol, which be the physical manifestation of the presence of God. They didn't want to live by faith. They didn't want to live with just words. They wanted something tangible, something they could see, something they could bow down before, something where they... they They believed the presence of God was in that. They didn't want to live by faith. They wanted to live by sight. And so they come and Aaron takes their golden earrings, puts them in a fire and fashioned a golden calf for them. And he says, chapter 32, verse 4, these are your gods. So they've become polytheistic all of a sudden. Many gods, they start worshipping Israel who brought you up out of Egypt, and they reduce God to this calf. They reduce Him to a calf, and an idol, and they lose the true God because God can't be contained in a little golden object. He can't be domesticated like that. And so, as a result, they create an alternative God, a counterfeit God, and God is furious. That's what we read, isn't it? That's why His anger is aroused. He's absolutely furious. 32, 33, and 34. Moses pleads with God on behalf of Israel. Chapter 32, verse 11. Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Notice he calls them your people. Because skip back down to verse 7. Look at how God refers to this people. The Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people, who you brought up out of Egypt, has become corrupt. You know, it's kind of it's a bit funny because you know what happens when Liz and I are having an argument at home and I need to send a message to her but I don't want to speak to her? I call Maisie over and say, Hey Maisie, can you tell your mother, not my wife, your mother, uh, this message? And that's what God's essentially doing here, isn't he? He's like, You go and tell your people. But notice what Moses says. Moses gets God's jealousy and he pleads God's jealousy back to God. He says, no, 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 these are your people. Why should your anger burn against your people, O Lord, whom you brought up out of Egypt with your mighty hand? And so Moses pleads, verse 12, why should the Egyptians say it was evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? This will make you look very, very bad, God. Don't do it. Have regard for the jealousy of your name. Have regard for the jealousy of your people and your character. Don't do this, Moses says. And then he says, verse 13, "'Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, "'to whom you swore by your own self, "'I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, "'and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them.'" He goes to God, he's like, you made a promise. Have regard for that. Moses appeals that damage would be done to the name of God. And he says, relent. Look at verse 12. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and don't do what you've promised. And verse 14, he does relent. And he doesn't bring the disaster on the people that he's threatened. But as we go on, we see that Moses is still insecure, as you can imagine. And so in Exodus 33, he pleads for God's presence to go with them. And so 33 verse 14, the Lord says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. But Moses says back, 33 verse 15, If your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. Notice what's going on here. Moses caught on what God's promising him. God's like, hey, Moses, no, no, I'll go with you. It's all right, I'll go with you. And Moses like, no, God, no, unless you go with us. You see, God is promising, no, I'll start over just with you, Moses. And Moses will have none of it. He pleads for his own people's sake and says, no, God, don't give up on them. Your presence must not just go with me. I want you to go with us. And if it doesn't go up with us, don't send us. Verse 16 of chapter 33. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go up with us? And so verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I'll do the very thing you've asked. So Moses, he's fascinating here. He's operating the way our Lord Jesus operates. Moses is the people's mediator before God, pleading their case Before him. And in that context, finally, God actually reveals his glory. Because Moses is still insecure. And finally, he says to God, God, show me your glory. Show me a visible manifestation, a sign of your favor. And verse 19, God says, chapter 33, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion, on whom I will have compassion. What is the greatness of the Lord's name? It's that he's free to show mercy to whoever he wants. He's not forced, he's not bound to, he's not even obligated to show mercy to you and I. Yet in his freedom, he chooses to do so. But here's my question, why if God ends up forgiving them, Why, if he ends up forgiving them a chapter and a half, two chapters later, why does he wait for Moses to plead for him? Why does he just say, no, I'm going to forgive you right from the start? Why does he even put Moses through all this trial of trying and having to intercede on the behalf of the Israelites? Surely he knows what he was going to do all along. What is God doing here? Well, he's revealing to us the depth and seriousness and jealousy of his love. C.S. Lewis, he says in uh, one of his books, he says that we don't really want a father in heaven. We actually want a grandfather in heaven. Because if you've ever noticed, noticed, fathers and mothers, they're always telling their kids what to do. And they're always saying, no, that's wrong. Stop doing that. Pick up your junk. Stop hurting your sister. Go and do this, you know. But you go to your grandfathers, my papa, right? Whenever my kids go over my papas, what does he want? He just wants them to love him, so they'll let—he'll let them do anything they want to do. You know, they go into the kitchen, pull out the pots and pans, they're banging around. He just loves them, and he doesn't really care, right? Because he doesn't have to take them home. Uh, and uh, you know, and it's interesting when it comes to a God in heaven, we're much, much happier with a grandfather in heaven a God who always loves us the way a grandfather loves us, but we don't really believe in a father in heaven, uh, do we? We certainly don't believe in a loving God who is a husband, who might be jealous, yearning for our love, and that his anger would be aroused when our heart focuses on something else. A jealous God says, no, 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 no. I want a love relationship with you which is exclusive and intense. How intense is God's love? Well, He refuses to relent on these people until Moses badges Him enough to do so. There's this beautiful verse in Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6. It's on your outline. And it says this. It says, For love is as strong as death, It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns. Burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. And that's the reason Moses must mediate. That's why it takes Moses, he has to pray and pray and plead and plead with God. Lest we think that God's love is weak, like a grandfather who just passes over sins cheaply and easily. No, it isn't easy for God to pass over your sins, or theirs. It takes a mediator pleading on our behalf, on their behalf. But here's the other thing, and I'm going to kind of intensify this, because it's interesting, throughout these passages, God says, I cannot go up with you, because if I do, I'll destroy you. And then by the end, he says, okay, I'll go with you. (laughs) It's fascinating, there's this paradox going on. At one moment, God said, I can't. It's not that I don't want to. I can't go up with you. I'll destroy you if I go up with you. But then finally he says, no, I will go up with you. So which is it? Is he going to go up with them and, and destroy them? Or is he not going to go up with them and not destroy them? And the paradox, paradox comes out most clearly if you've got a Bible in uh, Exodus 34, verse 5 to 7. One of the most famous parts in the Old Testament. So if you've got a Bible, open up there. Because here's the paradox. The Lord, finally, Moses asks, show me your glory. He appears in his glory, hides him in the cleft of the rock. And as he passes by, verse 6, in front of Moses, he proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. I don't know, I see a paradox in this. I see this contradiction. At one moment, God's saying, I'm gracious and compassionate and I'll forgive those who are wicked and rebellious. And then he says, but I don't leave the guilty unpunished. Which is it? (laughs) What is it? Will he punish the guilty or will he forgive the guilty? His name is, is, is so erotic, so paradoxical. He says, the Lord, the gracious, the compassionate, I will forgive the wicked. And yet I won't leave the guilty unpunished. Which is it? How can he both show mercy and punish the guilt at the same time? You know, it's, God's showing it. It's not an easy thing to be God here, to both be full of love and mercy And yet also to be full of justice and not to let the guilty get away with it. Well, we get a hint at how you actually come to terms with this this paradox back in chapter 32. And verse 31 and 32 of chapter 32, Moses goes back to the Lord. This is one of his prayers, pleading for the people. And he says, oh, what great sin these people have committed. He doesn't minimize their sin. He doesn't say, oh God, they haven't done anything really that bad. He says, no, they've done Something serious. Right? He says, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive them. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. What Moses realizes here is someone's got to be blotted out. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. And yet Moses comes along and says, Okay, okay, okay. if you're going to punish the guilty Can I stand in the place of the guilty so that the rest you can be gracious and compassionate, full of mercy and abounding in love towards them? But here's the thing, God rejects Moses' offer. God rejects Moses' offer. If you keep reading verse 33 and 34, God says, no, I've got to punish the guilty. But here's the thing, he doesn't reject the idea. He rejects Moses' offer, but he doesn't reject the idea because throughout the Old Testament, there's this substitute provided. We've already seen this in Exodus. A lamb who dies for the sins of the people. And in Isaiah 53, we learn that the lamb really is a human being. And then when the human being walks on earth, someone shouts out, look, it's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, in other words, Moses offers to do what only Jesus can do to stand in our place for our sins to be blotted out and to be destroyed, so that God could be compassionate and faithful, abounding a love in love and steadfastness, showing grace to thousands upon thousands. He is the true Moses who says to his father, Father. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Punish me instead of them. He's the sacrifice for sins and it makes, he makes it possible for God to show mercy. What an amazing paradox we read in these verses. It casts this long shadow all the way down history towards Christ. God says, I'm full of grace and compassion and yet I will not let the guilty go unpunished. How on earth can he do that? Unless he sends his son to be punished on our behalf so that he can show mercy to you and to me. Moses couldn't do that for them. But God was looking forward to the day when his son would. And I wonder whether you know that about Jesus for yourself. In Hebrews 7 verse 25 it says that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God because he always lives to intercede for them. In other words, Jesus is always doing what Moses is doing. He's up there at the right hand of God, pleading your case, moment by moment by moment. And here's the thing, what do you do when you're racked with guilt for willfully disobeying God for the 20th or 50th time? We are trapped in that addictive behavior which you know you're wrong and you can't break out of it, and you know God's jealousy is aroused by it, what do you do in that moment? You recall the fact that Jesus is standing in heaven beside the Father, praying for you in that moment, and pointing to His sacrifice on the cross, saying, God, Heavenly Father, I've paid for this sin. Unless you take hold of that, you'll be racked with guilt And you'll go through life so uncertain about your salvation. And you'll have this morbid, dour, joyless faith. Because you're terrified that one day God will come and punish you. No, Christ stood in your place. He was punished for your sins. And right this moment, he's standing beside God pleading your case. Now, what case is he pleading for you? Is he saying, God, have mercy on him? He's not even saying that, you know. He's not saying, God, give him a break. Toby, yeah, he sinned, but just, you know, give him a break this time. He's not even pleading that. He's pleading justice. Because on the cross, Jesus was justly punished for your sins. Jesus isn't saying to God, hey God, just lighten up, show a bit of mercy. He's saying, no, 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 you have punished this sin in history. At one point in time, 2,000 years ago. And so you cannot break forth in anger against your son, Toby, right now. That would be unjust to do that. His sins have been paid. The debt has been paid. Father, this sin, it deserves death, but I've paid it myself. So what do we learn about God's jealousy from the prayers? We learn that Jesus is the one who turns God's jealousy into good news because his jealous anger will not flame up and consume us because someone was blotted out on your behalf. Well, finally and quickly, what do we learn about God's jealousy from the sword? Uh, because um, this uh, this thing is the most uh, terrifying part in the whole of the chapters. If you have a look there, uh, Exodus 32 verse 15 What we see is when Moses comes down the mountain, verse 19, he approaches the camp and he sees the calf and the dancing and his anger this time burns. So he prays and he pleads, but he also gets furious. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, he breaks them to pieces he took the calf the people had made and he burned it in the fire. He ground it into a powder, scattered it on the water and he made the Israelites drink it. <laughs> I love that. Isn't that interesting? He said to Aaron, why did these people do to you what they did that you led them into such a great sin? Verse 22, Aaron says, don't be angry. I just threw the gold in to the fire and out popped the cow. You know, you meant to kind of laugh at that moment. And when, verse 25, Moses saw the people running wild, All right, this is uh, really what they're doing, is they're all naked and drunk. They're having sex with each other and they're bowing down to this calf. It's terrible. And Aaron had let them get out of control and they'd become a laughingstock to their enemies. Verse 26, so Moses stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites railed to him. And then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to another, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And the Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day there were about 3,000 of the people who died. This is shocking, isn't it? So what do we learn about the jealousy of God from these swords? Well, what we learn about is that here, Moses' own jealousy is evoked. He so shares the heart of God that he feels jealousy for the name of God. And that jealousy bursts out in anger at his fellow Israelites. They're brazenly committing adultery on their wedding day. He pleads their case before God, but he comes to them and they are unrepentant. They don't see the error of what they're doing. They don't feel any guilt about it. He comes down to plead with them to stop. And when he comes down, they're drunk, they're naked, they're brazen in their adultery. And they say, excuse me, can't I, I can't take my vow to God right now. I've got a naked girl in my tent and we're bowing down to this idol. And he's absolutely furious. And so what does he do? He straps a sword to his thigh. He asks people to join him. And they go through the camp, killing everyone who would lead them astray from worshipping the true God. While Aaron does nothing about what these people are doing, Moses springs to life and he steps up in the midst of the burning anger of God, with the burning passion of God. And he comes in, he knows the jealousy of God, and he throws himself into the situation and he takes life. And it's so shocking, and I wonder if you see in this move with the sword. You find it a little bit offensive. What's going on here? It's meant to show you that God's jealous love, it is so serious. It is so serious. Moses pleads that God would relent on the whole nation, but he just can't help himself from slaughtering 3,000 because it is so despicable, so horrendous so ugly. It's not just bad. It's intolerable. He couldn't let his entire culture denigrate into this. And so his zealous anger burns. You know, there's this TED Talk. I don't know if you saw it. And, uh, and it's a story. Uh, the, 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 the speaker tells a story about how in the 1950s, the Canadian government forced the Inuit people into settlements. And they'd taken away Uh, their land, their tools, their implements, thinking that 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 would force them into their settlements. But instead, this man arose and he broke out in the middle of the night. He had no tools. And this is a little bit uh, crude, I apologize, but this is a true story, right? Anyway, this man, he's locked in slavery pretty much uh, under the Canadian government who had this silly policy. No tools, no freedom, enslaved. And so what he does, he slips out of the igloo onto a cold Arctic night, pulls down his pants, and defecates into his hand. The feces begins to freeze, and he fashions it into the form of a knife. And he spits on the edge of the knife he has made out of his own poo, and it becomes very, very sharp. He sees this. He sees this uh, dog around the corner. He takes out. the the knife he's made and he kills the dog with the knife. He rips open the dog and he makes a sled out of the carcass of the dog. There's another dog nearby. He hooks up that other dog to the sled and he sails off into the Arctic free. I I just find that story very interesting, you know, a little bit (laughs) impulsive. But here's the thing, you know, you've got to love this guy's zeal. He knows exactly who he is, and he says, I will make a knife from my own poo if I have to. That's what he's saying there, and I think it's really great. It's a protest, and it's a passion, and it's a picture of Moses at this point. We find Moses offensive, and we find this poo knife pretty offensive (laughs) as well, don't we? But here you have a guy, and he's saying, no, 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 I know who I am. My life isn't about being enslaved to the Canadian government and bound up by some bureaucrat. And Moses comes along and says, no, 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 I know who I am and I know who we are. Our life, Israel, we are a holy nation, a people belonging to God and we will not tolerate this crap. And so he goes through the camp, not with a poo knife, but with a real sword, (laughs) stabbing his fellow Israelites And so metaphorically speaking, Vine Church, let's strap on a sword and let's get our world out of this mess. Now, here's the thing. We live on the other side of Jesus. We live on the other side of the fact that Jesus has paid the punishment for our sin. So we don't go around slitting people's throats with poo knives or real swords, right? We just don't do that because punishment has landed on Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, no Christian is ever called to take up a knife, a gun, or a bomb. We're told to live at peace with the world and so to live such a great life that the nations, the people around us, would see how great and jealous and good and compassionate our God is. That He does not uh, leave unpunished the guilty, but that He's punished His Son in our place, that we would go free. And so I think we need that kind of zeal that this Inuit had. This zeal that recognizes, no, I know who I am. I am a child of God, and I will live rightly in His world. Next week, we've got Julie Reynolds coming along to visit us. The next two weeks are kind of mission weeks at Vine Church. And uh, the first week, we've got Julie Reynolds coming along. She's This 72-year-old lady, beautiful woman, who's heading over to work alongside Native Americans in the USA on a reservation. Why? Because she is zealous for the health of the indigenous population over there. And she's jealous for the reputation of Jesus over there. And she says, someone has to go and tell them. She's 72 freaking years old. She's going to come. She's going to put some fire in our bellies. Now, this is Mike. We need the zealousness of Mike Jontek, who stops working at Oracle last year to train for full-time ministry so that he'd be able to teach people the gospel. It's the zealousness of this simple love movement which has sprung up out of a, a church in Balmain, which a friend of mine runs. Simple love, where they gather together Uh, stuff which refugees and asylum seekers would, would need, and they distribute it out in the western suburbs of Sydney to those in need. Notice that these examples, no one actually takes up a sword, a literal sword. Jesus doesn't call us to do that. Have you got that? It was part of a political domain of the Old Testament. The kingdom of God is not expressed that way anymore, but there is a zeal, there's a gumption to these examples and so my question to you is is there something going on in this church that expresses a sellout to another god to idols you know you notice people talking a lot about seeking god's face but no one ever seems to pray and so you make a resolute decision to get up a half an hour earlier in the morning to seek god's face in prayer, you notice that people talk a lot about reaching out to the city, but you realize that you haven't really been doing this. And so you approach Dale and say, Dale, I've got no idea how to teach kids about Jesus, but would you use me to teach the kids of our city about Jesus? You know, Or do you just notice this numbed indifference around you? And the need for someone to defecate in their hand, you know, or... Metaphorically speaking, sorry to use that one; it just came to my head. To start a fire, you know. And are you someone who will wildly make a lot of noise about injustices surrounding the detention of children in asylum in our country? Because you're zealous for good works and jealous for God's name, for Aboriginal health, making a lot of noise about how our sporting world is has this crazy addiction to gambling. It would be great if each of us was known to have fire in our belly, a metaphorical sword in the hand, because we know the jealousy of God. I wonder whether most of us barely even smolder. Smolder for God, though. And that we look at the fire burning on a birthday cake, and that looks dangerous compared to the fire burning in our own souls. I wonder whether most of us, we just sit here and we listen and we go about our nice, comfortable Christian lives and we never put our whole selves in. We never grapple and wrestle with who God is, which is what this whole Exodus series is meant to be. And the whole series is designed to see God as a consuming fire, jealous for his name, abounding in love and steadfastness, showing grace to thousands but he will not leave the guilty unpunished but the good news is he's punished the guilty in jesus christ and so we have a message of salvation we need to start a fire fueled by the jealousy of god in our lives let's pray heavenly father we we realize we've wrestled with you in the book of exodus and many of us still have a lot of questions i do And yet, Father, we are confronted with you as jealous. Your name is jealous. And it's not the jealousy of an ogre, but it's the jealousy of a lover. Fighting extinction. Fighting love's extinction. And so we pray that we'd so grapple with that, so know that, that it would make us a zealous people. Zealous for good works and jealous for your reputation and noun in our city and our world. We pray that such a fire would start in our hearts, that the world would feel it in the decades to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.